Bitcoin and Co. The podcast about crypto economy and the future of money. Hosted by author and speaker Anita Posch. Hello and welcome to this episode of my Bitcoin and Co. podcast. I'm happy that you're listening. You can find more details about this episode at www.bitcoincopodcast.com. Please subscribe to the podcast, share it on social media, leave a review on iTunes and recommend it to your friends. This supports the continuation of the podcast. The more listeners and subscribers, the more people gain knowledge about Bitcoin and Co. too. Let's start with the episode after this short message from our sponsors. You're looking for a solution to store Bitcoin the safe and easy way? The Card Wallet is a high secure way to storing Bitcoin offline, developed by Confinity and the Austrian State Printing House. The Card Wallet is a professional cold storage solution made with high quality security materials and tamper proof features that prevent the manipulation of the card. If you want to know more or buy the Card Wallet, go to www.cardwallet.com. So hello and welcome to this episode of the Bitcoin and Co. podcast. I'm very happy that I'm able to announce a special guest today. At least in my world, it's a special guest, someone who is mentioned in the Bitcoin white paper and in the Tor white paper is a rare and special and unique guest. I'm honored and welcome Adam Beck. Well, thank you for inviting me to <laughs> uh, this uh, conference here in Malta. Yes, thanks for inviting me and uh, for your time for the podcast. To start something with a little bit of personal side, while I was preparing our interview, I read your Wikipedia entry and I realized that we are born in 1970 both. Ah. So we have a little uh, common history, the childhood in the 70s and the 80s. I mean, I, I, was the, I was definitely the only girl in school in 1984 who had a Commodore VC20 uh, computer. When did your interest in uh, computer stuff and technology start? Um, when did you get your first computer? Um, I think it's probably like very early 1980s. I got a ZX81, which is um, a Z80 based 8-bit CPU and uh, one kilobyte of RAM with an <laughs> expansion to 16 kilobytes and learnt how to program in basic on it and then uh, also learnt uh, Z80 assembly code. Okay, that's where you were ahead of the curve of me, <laughs> because I only did basic. And and uh, did you also have this tape recorder stuff to yep. store things? Yeah, yep. funny. <laughs> um, so you're from, from England, actually? Yes. Yeah, yep. you studied in Exeter, I've seen. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Um, how did that all involve uh, a start that you uh, studied computer science and have a PhD in distributed systems and now you're here in Malta, the CEO of Blockstream. So can you please give a little introduction in your work life? Until uh, now? Yeah, so I mean, because I had the computer and became very fascinated with, uh, you know, the, the way that you could... Uh, be technically creative, like make it do things, optimize things, or achieve interesting results with programming. Uh, when it came 
time to choose a subject as you progress through different stages of the school system in different countries. You have to narrow your field of studies from general to more specific. So at age 16, I was okay. The choice, there was no computer science at uh, A-level, which is 16 to 18 in the UK. So I studied mathematics, more mathematics, physics, and economics. And that was my choices. So very sort of science, maths focused. But I would have studied computers already if there was an option. And they had um, a lab with some computers at the uh, A-level college. So I taught myself to program in Pascal on those computers. And so then, the, you know, after the A-levels, your next choice is uh, you've really got to choose one subject or one or two combined. So I chose computer science at degree level. And at that point, you know, there were a number of universities offering computer science as a degree subject. So then I was able to do what I really was interested in, mm-hmm. which was uh, programming and learning about computer science in a kind of scientific uh, way. But on the other hand, this broader background also with economics is also good for Bitcoin now. Yeah, I mean, already when I was in uh, doing A-levels, I was interested in sort of free market and uh, market efficiency, having less functions of society intermediated by government, because it seemed to me, you know, that there's the political theory that You know, a government can have goodwill to do something, but if they collect taxes and then implement something in administrating in administrating the system, they uh, they employ many people and they're on a large scale very very inefficient. And so, I was sort of more interested in uh, moving more functions of society into the free market and having smaller government and. So later, I became aware of, you know, University of uh, RSA encryption and then PGP uh, when that was released, which uses RSA for email encryption. And it exposed me to a sort of a convergence of things I was interested in, in terms of the technology and mathematics and positive societal change where the individual could have more direct empowerment for personal privacy, confidentiality, and its shift in the power of uh, government versus the individual. So to my point of view, the government is just a, a service, uh, you know, for, for the individual, right? It, it doesn't, the government doesn't own the individual. The individuals uh, employ the government. So, uh, that, that's, uh, so my way of thinking was that okay, with this kind of technology, individuals can directly take uh, more control of their lives, have more self-determination. And one of the technologies related to privacy was uh, electronic cash. So people were interested in previous electronic cash systems like uh, DigiCash was a protocol around that time. Uh, So there was quite a lot of um, excitement about that uh, at the time. And the DigiCash company uh, went bankrupt unfortunately and the architecture of that electronic cash system has actually very strong privacy much better than bitcoins in a mathematical uh, security sense but it's um, not as survivable or anti-fragile because it relies on a centralized server and the centralized server went bankrupt so after that event nobody who had coins could really prove whether they were the rightful owner anymore 
Mm-hmm. Or if they have been spent already. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the, the double spend database was centralized. And so I think you can view, you know, after that event, uh, and I had, uh, I was, uh, at some point I invented Hashcash for reasons we can get into in a minute. But the the observation from Digicash going bankrupt, because people were very motivated to see an electronic cash system deployed, so they're disappointed that Digicash failed and they were interested in lessons learned for why it failed as to what to do differently next time or how to design an improved system that would be long-lived. And the observation is, well, it can't be centralized because single point of failure. And so there was discussion on the cypherpunks and cryptography lists about having a double-spend database be distributed in a peer-to-peer network um, already in maybe 97, 98, and ideas. Um, so, and then to come to Hashcash and how that fits together with it, um, I was operating uh, Remailer, which is a way to provide email privacy. Um, and I had seen people uh, send spam through the Remailer to Usenet discussion forums, which are broadcast. So, you would know that each message that got broadcast that was spam would be received by, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of uh, Usenet servers throughout the world. So it consumed quite a lot of resources. So, and normally what people had been doing to combat spam, and still today, is they would just blacklist whoever spammed. So they would blacklist the email address or they blacklist the IP address of the server. And with... A remailer, you don't know, by design, you don't know who sent it. So you don't know their IP address and you don't know the email address by design. So you can't, there's no way to stop spam in a normal sense. Mm -hmm. So it caused me to rethink, you know, there's a problem statement, people are spamming. And it caused me to think about it in a different way to try to understand what is the root cause of this problem. And the realization that it's, it's because it's free and that then maybe we can create a cost um, without charging. So charging is obviously a possibility, but at the time there was no PayPal. PayPal itself is a centralized system with fairly arbitrary policies. There were merchant merchant payment systems which accepted credit cards, but that would conflict with privacy because you would reveal a name to pay with a credit card. And it's also a kind of pretty big barrier to entry to, to do that. Uh, so I thought of the idea of creating an artificial cost with proof of work and found a way to do that technically using hash collisions. So you can create a arbitrarily large amount of work that has to be used to create a proof and then be able to verify that that amount of work was used very, very quickly in very few, uh, very, very small fraction of a second and uh, attach this as a, and a one-use postage stamp to an email that could be sent through Remailer that so was compatible with Remailer use, and it could be used for regular email. But, um, you know, almost straight away after that, after I released the source code and described this system, people on the cypherpunks and cryptography list were thinking about how to use it, you know, for other things, uh, including observations such that it seems like a digital gold and then trying to work out okay but how could you make it respendable and that kind of thing mm-hmm. so you mentioned the cypherpunks 
Um, can you shortly explain what the cypherpunks are or where, or do they still exist? Yeah, I mean, they still exist. And I think that Bitcoin has um, opened many people's eyes to the ideas. And effectively, there's a new wave of cypherpunks and cypherpunk <laughs> type of thinking. And really, the, the thought process was that... Uh, You know, people were interested to see empowerment for the individual and could see that previous, you know, before internet, um, levels of privacy were being eroded in the internet because so many things are logged. You know, ISPs are logging IP addresses against phone numbers or against street addresses or account numbers or, you know, bank details. And... Uh, so every, everything, because there's a risk that everything would be tracked in a way that wasn't the case pre-internet, and so there was an interest to reclaim the societal norm of, that, of the previous degree of privacy. And the thinking of the people was, well, firstly they're technologists, so they're going to build technology, but also the thinking that lobbying is not such an effective way because you know maybe the establishment and the political system is not so interested in user rights and privacy. So if you want user rights and privacy, you should just, you already have the inherent right to them, so just use them, and it will become a new societal norm. Yeah, so I, th I think the idea was that really um, it's more effective to, you know, directly use your existing rights, and uh, if many people are using, become accustomed to using something, it becomes something that laws follow. So the idea that generally regulations and laws are trailing indicators and follow what society considers to be uh, their rights or normal. So the idea was like like the, the, the slogan is cypherpunks write code. Yeah. So to write the code and set up the systems and then see who adopts it and then as soon as it's adopted by the general public, policy has to follow So right. That's that's the idea. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think generally, if you look back more years ago, you know, 50 years or 100 years, there were many things that used to be illegal that are publicly yeah. accepted the normal things these days. And, and, you know, eventually they change, but it's difficult to imagine persuading the policy thinkers yeah. to lead the conversation, right? They're going to follow what society is doing slowly and maybe 20 to 50 years later or something. Mm. And what we see also now, I guess, is like in Bitcoin that many people are really against Bitcoin. So people are first, they fight you, then they laugh at you, and then they accept you yeah. in that way. Yeah. Well, I mean, from people that were early users of the internet, there were probably some analogies, I think, You know, big companies were scared to connect to the Internet. They had a view that, oh, you know, the Internet is only for geeks or maybe for pornography or something like that. And they didn't connect to the Internet. They used the intranet and they were disconnected from the Internet. And eventually they came to realize that there's more value in joining the network and benefiting And now it's unthinkable to everybody that you would switch the internet off and go back to the fax yeah, machines. But, but the, the big companies are like monop monopolies now in the internet, like Facebook and Google. Yeah. So actually the, the thing has uh, flipped. 
now we have these big monopolies who control what we do. So on, from this point of view, we need Bitcoin and privacy more than ever. Right. I mean, it's true that things tend to revert to mean. So, um, you know, for example, PayPal started as a kind of more bearer electronic cash system and became more centralized and then started to, you know, initially was a disruptor to be easier to use than banks and actually now has uh, payment policies that are as bad, if not worse, than banks in terms of arbitrary you know, account suspension and things like that. So it's certainly the case. And, you know, previously to the internet, people were concerned with monopoly practices of telephone companies. And now it's probably monopoly practices of big internet providers like Facebook and so on. And I mean, I think it's time as well for uh, more sort of peer-to-peer user-controlled technology for more functions other than Bitcoin, but also, you know, file sharing, publishing and social media. So there are you know, projects out there where people are trying that kind of thing. It's a kind of convenience thing though. So I guess people are typically will use something centralized for a convenience reason until it starts to have enough side effects with, you know, policy, political policies even. You know, it seems like in some cases big social media companies are taking activist political viewpoints and restricting the speech of particular political views, which is, you know, people consider that to be pretty bad because it's a form of censorship, really. Yeah, I'm more concerned with, like, uh, digital currencies by nation states. I mean, I'm quite sure that they will come and they might be on private permissioned blockchains, even if even... And then they will track everything. So I think mm-hmm. it's very important that uh, also Bitcoin uh, gets more privacy features because, as you said before, it's not that uh, um, resist. Uh, it's very open. Um, so what what are the next steps? What do you see here on um, solutions for Bitcoin to be uh, more privacy, has more privacy features? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of uh, incremental things happening and some longer-term tracks as well. So, as you said, I think privacy and also fungibility is important, which is a different concept that relates to mean that if you receive a coin, you should be able to spend it, and each coin should be worth the same amount. And it's a principle of law with uh, many uh, government currencies as well, with the paper or coins, that they should be fungible, meaning the user should have confidence that when they receive it, that each coin is the same and they shouldn't, you know, be penalized like uh, this 20 euro note is worth 15 euros because the previous user used it in a gray market or something. <laughs> so you want to, you want to avoid that kind of thing. If that, if, if fungibility gets impaired too much, it could cause a collapse in confidence um, for Bitcoin or for national currencies, which is how those fungibility laws came to be. But in a cryptocurrency and previously cash systems, people think about, uh, cryptographic fungibility or technical fungibility where it's fungible other than for practical reasons it's technically fungible so that the person that receives it can't make the linkage and then they can't there's no hooks for them to try and apply policy so bitcoin's fungibility is not perfect but improving slowly and you know there are a number of things that have happened over the last years and like uh, um, the 
uh, dandelion protocol. So it's a way to send transactions so that it's less obvious which IP address originated the transaction. Uh, so it's a kind of more of a peer-to-peer networking change so that the normally before dandelion, the transaction would just be broadcast to all the nodes connected to the node that published it, and then they would publish it onwards, and so it would flood through the network. And people who were looking to analyze the network, make many connections, and try to see who first published it to know who the author of the transaction was, like by IP address even, which could like almost put an address, like a physical address. And so Dandelion sends it to very few hops initially. So it will send it to one hop, and another hop, another hop, and then it will go to everybody. And then it's more difficult for somebody to monitor the network because they, you know, there are under less visible early hops. Mm-hmm. So that's just one example, but there are also more kind of incremental things um, like change management and Wasabi Wallet has a bunch of, you know, a number of privacy features. And another trend is Lightning, which adds privacy within Lightning. It is interesting because you get scalability from Lightning, and scalability and privacy or fungibility are often uh, come together because if you if you if you reveal less information, you can scale more because you're you're, you're sort of using less bandwidth and that kind of thing. But also, there's less information to analyze. So in Lightning, the you get privacy because the communications are sent point to point and they're not broadcast. So it makes it more bandwidth scalable and more private as well. And there's sort of encryption. So when the uh, when a lightning channel eventually gets written back to the blockchain, it won't have the history about which transactions cancelled each other and got routed during its use. So that provides more privacy. And for the future, I mean, you know, another thing is kind of wallet fingerprinting. So... Today, different types of transaction patterns are created by specific wallets. So looking at a transaction on the blockchain, you can maybe tell, oh, that transaction was made by a green address wallet because it's a two of two with a time lock. And this one was made by like maybe Wasabi because it's looking different. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that some of the protocol uh, people are working on is Taproot and Schnorr signatures, which... Uh, reduces can can be used to reduce some of this fingerprinting effect because it it has a kind of default branch like a lot of the uh, small contracts that are used in Bitcoin wallets and transactions are you know ninety nine percent of the time do option A and in some failure case do option B and so with Taproot you can hide what option B is until you need it and you can even hide that it exists so for most of the transactions, they just look like there's a single signer, it's being spent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but underneath that, there might be different spending rules depending on the wallet. Okay, I mean, those things, those cryptographic things always sound like magic to me. <laughs> and I think they are magic in a way, because if you can send uh, an amount from one person to the other and um, it's transparent so the blockchain can be um, validated so that it's right and correct... But on the other hand, other people cannot see uh, what the amount was and where it came from. I think that's magic in a way. Yeah. I mean, confidential transactions, which is a more forward technology, I mean, it's it's been implemented in 
the Liquid sidechain, which is a Bitcoin sidechain, a blockchain, blockstream developed. Um, we have implemented confidential transactions, and that's it is counterintuitive that, that what it achieves is possible, but it allows you to encrypt the amounts of Bitcoin that are being transferred and still audit, you know, still run a full node and audit that the Bitcoin ledger balances. And, and the reason it works is a form of encryption that still satisfies uh, the rules of addition. So, you know, I can have uh, encrypted eight Bitcoin and send somebody else encrypted three Bitcoin and get back encrypted five in change. And somebody who is auditing the ledger can see the encrypted eight adds up to encrypted three plus encrypted five, but they don't know the amounts. Mm -hmm. And the fact that that's possible is uh, quite surprising to yeah. many people, including many very technical people, actually. <laughs> but it's uh, it does work, and yeah. you know there are proofs that it's uh, secure to do this. Yeah, cool. Before we continue our show, a short message from our sponsors. Thanks for listening, and we will be back soon. Start accepting Bitcoin, Dash or Litecoin for your business today with the Salamantex cryptocurrency payment service. The SX1801 POS terminal by Salamantex offers an easy system for you to accept payments in cryptocurrency absolutely risk-free and receive the exact amount in fiat, such as Euro or US Dollar, into your company account. Easy tax reporting tools and system integrations allow you to just go ahead with your business as usual. Sign up now with Salamantex and start the easy way to crypto pay. Find more information at salamantex.com. That's S-A-L-A-M-A-N-T-E-X.com. Uh, we are right now here in Malta at the Understanding Bitcoin Conference. Uh, you are one of the organizers of it. What's the goal of this conference? Yeah, so what, what I had observed and was talking with uh, Giacomo Zucco and Tonvez about at a conference in Chile, something that I noticed through, you know, interacting in the Bitcoin ecosystem that um, there are lots of different tools, you know, wallets and hardware wallets, different pieces of equipment and software, um, sometimes with under-explained features. And so it seemed to me that there's a... A communication gap or an explanation gap about how to use the existing tools. And I think it probably comes about because the people that are actually implementing it are very technical and they're in their, in their world. And so it's all obvious to them. And they don't necessarily make a video explaining, okay, this is why this is interesting and this is how you set it up. So as a side effect of things like that, we found that You know, for example, the green address wallet has the ability to plug a hardware wallet into the Android phone using a small USB connector. And then you can actually use a hardware wallet in a completely mobile way, which is quite convenient for people who travel and want to more securely store Bitcoins. Um, and it's had that feature since like 2014, but almost nobody knew. And yeah. so when they'd hear about it, they'd say, well, that's... That's great. When did you add that? I was like, oh, it's been there for years. So obviously, and it's not the only example. There are many examples yeah. like this. So, so I thought, well, let's let's try to do something about that. And so that's the format of the conference: is uh, panel discussion from people who are involved in the development and deployment of this software or hardware to describe, in their own words, why they think it's useful and gives uh, what advantages it gives to the users. And then afterwards, some demonstration of 
actually setting up and using. So we were able to get you know video cameras pointed at smartphones and things so that people can actually see the setup. And then on the last, so there's two days of the conference, Friday and Saturday, and on the Sunday, there's a kind of uh, unstructured place where people can come and uh, get help with configuration and things like that. So hopefully the video content, which will be on YouTube afterwards, will be reference material and maybe people will be inspired to write some how-tos or guides for how to set things up and uh, close the gap in all the very interesting things that you can do that people don't know you can do. Yeah, I think it's great because the thing with the uh, green address wallet and the hardware wallet um, and that you can, can put in between the Orbot, the, the Tor browser, I didn't know that. I mean, mm. I have it on my phone, but I didn't know that I can oh, uh, yeah. uh, include it. Right. Um, so I think it's a great opportunity Um but not really for newbies. I think it's for, for, for users who are like say, okay, I can use Bitcoin. I can pay with it. I can hold it. But um, what's next? Or, so as aspiring power users. Yeah. Yeah. Or something like so, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And I'm sure you will find people who will uh, translate it to other languages. Me, for instance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what do you think uh, does a newbie need to know in the first place? when uh, wanting to use Bitcoin? Well, I think you need to know some security practices because I have seen, you know, with the support discussions, the questions we get for the Green Dress Wallet, um, that people are new and maybe not from a technology background. They don't necessarily understand about public key encryption and which pieces of information are private and what that means because you're used to interacting with online banking and as an analogy and if you lose the banking password okay, it will be inconvenient maybe you'll have to go to the bank with some documents but you can recover it and in bitcoin that doesn't happen so you're when people say you you are your own bank they really mean it if you uh, yeah. if you lose all the keys there's there's nobody you can go to to fix this and so you know uh, there are warnings obviously and many of the wallets Uh, encourage users to write down the backup information by asking questions. So they will show the information to backup and on the next screen they mm-hmm. will say, now give me three of those yeah. digits or words that you backed up and if you can't answer then they stop you before you go further and say, no, you really need to write it down. Um, because, I mean, part of the problem is also people sometimes will just try something out and think, well, it doesn't matter. I'm just putting a small amount of money or I'm just trying it out. And then they forget mm-hmm. or the price went up a hundred mm-hmm. times and they put small money on it. And suddenly, you know, 90% of their net worth is in this thing and there's no backup. And that's a bad situation. So, But, you know, even to the basics, the intuitions about how to handle security are difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yeah, I think that's the great thing also on this conference uh, that you can meet the the people who develop the stuff and mm-hmm. you can ask them and that builds a new, uh, it's another layer of trust, I would say, because it's always the same with uh, knowing people from Twitter or from uh, YouTube videos mm-hmm. is something different than seeing them, talk to them yep. and um, having this personal contact. Yeah. Yep. So I think it's very important. Um Blockstream is the company you co-founded and yep. you're also uh, the CEO. Uh, you're doing a lot of projects. 
um, like the Blockstream satellite. I mean, it's one of the uh, best stories, I think, in Bitcoin at the moment. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Um, yeah, so actually we're going to demonstrate it. So hopefully there'll be some video on the stream tomorrow evening. Um, so it's, you know, one of the concerns with Bitcoin is global access. So, you know, there are many people who have a uh, lack of access to financial services or banking or trustable banking, live in areas of the world where uh, they don't have reliable internet or the internet in large bandwidth is expensive. Like maybe they have GPS on a smartphone, but a high enough speed bandwidth to sync 10 gigabytes of data a month, which is the minimum it would take to participate directly in the Bitcoin network with a desktop computer or a laptop computer, would be too expensive. And so we started on a satellite project to provide infrastructure to uh, fix that. And then the idea is that the satellite broadcasts Bitcoin transaction data in real time and the blocks And then people can run full nodes connected to a satellite dish. The equipment is quite low cost because it uses software-defined radio, so probably about less than 100 euros of equipment. Um, and the dishes are normal satellite TV dishes. That's like standard equipment, which you can easily get. And then, you know, if they're in an area without a good internet connection, they can set up a Wi-Fi hotspot or a mesh network. And if they want to send transactions because the satellite is received only at this point they can the transactions themselves are very small so you can use something that's expensive per megabyte because you're only sending 250 bytes so you know the the cost if it costs you you know ten dollars a megabyte to send data and you're sending 250 bytes it's still going to be a very cheap you know a cent or something Okay, you can receive for free. You just need the satellite dish and a connection to a node. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and for sending, you need the internet, but We, it's just a small data uh, right. fraction. So, I mean, it's you have to find uh, some way to send. And so one of there are a couple more demos that relate uh, the conference. One is the GoTenna mesh network. So somebody's going to demonstrate that. And that is a way to peer-to-peer -peer radio send data back towards the internet. And when it gets onto the internet, then it goes back to the satellite uplink and gets broadcast again. Mm -hmm. um, another way is uh, uh, Pavel Rosnak, who's the CTO of uh, Trezor, has a SMS gateway. So you can send a Bitcoin transaction through SMS and it will get sent back to the internet and then back to the satellite dish. It's also possible to send directly to satellites No. So, I could send an SMS to his gateway, and yeah. the the SMS goes to the satellite. Then, well, so it goes it goes to the Bitcoin network. Yeah, and then the satellite and then they don't the yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, so, and the, and the other way you could do it is is a bit more expensive, but you can buy bi-directional internet service, you know, like Iridium Data or HughesNet. The equipment ranges in price from. You know, maybe 500 euros or a bit less if you buy it secondhand on eBay. Uh, the problem is the subscription service. You know, there's a minimum fee per month. But uh, a small town that's very remote could share a connection. And the cost per megabyte is quite high. But again, you're, you only would send the small transactions through it. So it's possible for, mm. you know, very off-grid 
use cases to be even outside of GSM or internet range to still transact. And is this a use case that you would say for your personal vision in general, this is what I work for? I mean, I, th I find it pretty interesting because, you know, it's, it's a piece of infrastructure and there are more things that have to come after it. But I think one of the interesting things about Bitcoin is to be, you know, the, the properties that we like about it, that it's censorship resistant and permissionless and you don't need, you know, to establish a bank account to use it. And that's great for people in emerging markets who have a smartphone, but they don't have a bank account, they don't have a credit card. And they can't participate in like very expensive uh, things. They can't, you know, they can't. They can't afford the bandwidth because it's either not available or it'd be very expensive locally. Um, and I think you know everybody would like anybody who's interested in the properties of Bitcoin to be able to get access to it. So we do need some technology with more global reach. And satellite, you know, the satellite coverage is almost global at this point. There's four satellites and covering almost everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, you know, it's one part of the picture. It also needs the, you know, small businesses or entrepreneurs or power users to build the Wi-Fi hotspots using it. And, you know, a number of people have set up uh, Wi-Fi hotspots on like Bitcoin embassies or Bitcoin user communities and in different areas to try it out and to you know start to build the software platforms. So some people are building um, uh, you know full nodes with lightning nodes on them or with small payment gateways for businesses like the Cypher node and the Noddle and there are lots of different kind of value-add features where a small business can operate a whole business from a Raspberry Pi kind of thing. So you could almost uh, see somebody uh, with a satellite dish and a generator and a Raspberry Pi and a solar panel operating a business in a desert with no infrastructure, basically. Yeah, so this person would be a bank, actually. Yeah, yeah. directly. I mean, they would have yeah. no intermediaries. They would have full control. So if we can eventually, you know, in the next year or so make that much more convenient and turnkey and keep the costs reasonable mm -hmm. i think it could be pretty interesting for people to you know uh compete with banking infrastructure i think part of the problem is the banking infrastructure doesn't scale very far down in terms of cost and also the policies they have are you know maybe externally imposed but they're a big barrier to entry into normal financial mm -hmm. like international financial world so bitcoin can uh, provide access with with you know scaling down um, to be more globally accessible could we say that bitcoin would be a good thing for people like in emerging countries or they don't have enough money to be able to open a bank account and on the other hand for us in the western countries it's to maintain a level of privacy and have our own uh, money yeah i mean it it's very interesting because bitcoin has Lots of advantages, and different people find it interesting for different reasons. And um, I mean, for people with high-speed, reliable internet, and you know, high-speed internet on their cell phone, they have a pretty good time, right? It's not so expensive to them, and they're not really worried about many things. But you know, even for users in developed countries, I think the satellite is interesting for privacy reasons because because it's a passive receive only equipment nobody knows that you're receiving bitcoin data where if you're running a full node it's very visible you know your isp can see it 
even other nodes on the Bitcoin peer-to-peer network can see it. And there are definitely people running uh, sort of spying services that are Mm. trying to monitor and analyze the Bitcoin network that probably have your like home address, try to correlate it with your Bitcoin address by using your IP address, basically. And so by connecting a node directly to the peer-to-peer network, you you run that risk. So, you know, without the satellite, you know, you could use Tor, but the satellite is a very strong guarantee that nobody's going to see your IP address because mm-hmm. you're not actually, you are connected to the Bitcoin network, but not via an observable point-to-point link, but via a passive broadcast link. And then when you want to send a transaction, okay, you can do that using Tor. It's very small, so it won't stand out. Okay, cool. So, okay, we're coming to an end now. Um, one question, if you look back now, I mean, we are rather old, I say now. In this, in this space, anyway. <laughs> in this space, yeah. Um, uh, would you do anything different or have you had any uh, change in perspectives in the last years about Bitcoin or other stuff in this uh, sphere? Um I mean, not not so much actually. You know, I, sometimes people will find very old uh, posts I wrote on the cypherpunks list. Uh, I guess uh, what is it? Uh, yeah, probably 15 years ago or something. And most of them I could have written yesterday. They look kind of the same, uh, same opinions. But I think one thing that I found quite interesting is that uh, actually shipping things. Even early versions of things or ideas is uh, very productive because, you know, we found with confidential transactions, for example, that we uh, published the source code and the paper and talked to other people about why it's interesting and the optimization challenges. And it led to, you know, other researchers finding new things like the bulletproofs uh, are related to and make a smaller version of confidential transactions. And Mimblewimble also uses the range proof. So, you know, sometimes people have a tendency to want to perfect something before they publish it, but it's really shows the value of uh, open early collaboration to release things early and publish things. So, you know, I think actually, I mean, when I first released uh, the idea about confidential transactions in 2013 before Blockstream, I was... I'd been working on it for six months on and off, trying to make it compact enough to be plausible. And it's very hard to size optimize it. And, you know, so my inclination was, oh, I can't, I can't publish it when it's so big because it's uh, not practical. I think if anything, the lesson is like, well, it's, it's good to publish it because other people can help kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just ship it in a way. Yeah, ship it. I mean, I mean, I mean <laughs> like 15 years ago, the possibilities to exchange opinion and stuff was not that easy as it is now. So yeah. actually, that's also helpful. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Um, where can people uh, get to know more about your work and Blockstream? Yeah, so if you go to blockstream.com or at blockstream on Twitter, and my Twitter handle is at adam3us. Thank you very much for this uh, interesting interview. Thank you. And uh, all the best to you and to the um, conference. Thank you. That's good. Bye. This was today's episode. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast in your podcast player, share it with your friends and family on Twitter or Facebook, and leave a review on iTunes or YouTube. 
If you want to advertise your product or company, please send an email to hello at bitcoincopodcast.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Audio editing and signation spoken by Katrin Eidenhammer. ID and production by Anita Posch. Thank you.